We're at part three of our little series on the biblical history of Israel and really the Jews, not the Israelis, um, and the Palestinians. And I want to be clear, we're, we're not looking at this from a, a political standpoint. That's not our goal. That's not what we're trying to achieve at all. We're looking at this uh, from a spiritual aspect. In fact, uh, in the upcoming weeks, we'll, uh, we'll look at uh, the future of Israel and then even how that pertains to um, Christianity and, and, and what that looks like. Um, I'm reminded just uh, seeing Chris over here and just such a good looking young man. Um, just have seen him uh, grow up. It's, it's pretty wild um, to see these kids become men. And uh, please pray for him. Pray for um, our, our other soldiers throughout the world as this is uh, a very dangerous time. Um, and so uh, we will be praying for you. And uh, even more important than your physical safety, your spiritual well-being. Um, and that ties in w with this as well. We're, we're, we're concerned with people coming to Jesus, right? Our, our, our A1 goal is not that, you know, two nations, you know, figure out how to live together. Um, our, our goal is, is spiritual. And so uh, we just pray that uh, uh, you would be strong in the Lord and that this would be a great time of spiritual growth uh, in, in one way or another. We're... Uh, Unfortunately, I think it's something that's been so glorified. Uh, you can understand why. We, we have men that are heroes. We have um, very heroic acts. If, if, uh, if you really want to give yourself a treat, read about you know, our Congressional Medal winners. Just a, a amazing acts of selfless, sacrificial people who are willing to pay the ultimate price and uh, and, and die for their, their fellow soldiers and really die for us. Um, we sit here today uh, in, the, in the cloud of peace because of what they have done, what they are doing, and what they're going to do. Uh, and that's not to be uh, taken lightly. We just got done and kind of celebrating, you know, our veterans uh, on Friday and this weekend. And, and hopefully that, uh, that doesn't end uh, because they, they are... Uh, deserving of, of, of such treatment. As, as a history major, I always uh, really enjoyed the Civil War, um, the, the, the complexity of it. One of my favorite, so, uh, not just soldiers, but generals was William Tecumseh Sherman. And uh, for those of you who know the Civil War, he's basically why the war ended. Uh, we lost 600,000 people in that war. William Tecumseh Sherman ended it by crippling the South. The Northern soldiers went on a march, an absolute march of destruction. In their path, nothing was, was spared. Bridges, roads, telegraph lines, horses, mules, crops, people, whatever was in their way was destroyed. And that was to bring the South down to its knees. Why? To save lives so that they would stop, so that they would, would give up. We, we saw the same thing in ending World War II. 
where as Americans we drop not just one nuclear bomb, but two nuclear bombs, uh, destroying buildings, houses, people, men, women, children, everything in its path. Again, why? To save more lives. They, they, they estimate that millions of lives were saved uh, because of, of those two bombs. We even see some other events in, in Dresden. You, you guys may remember in World War II, that the Nazis would send the Luftwaffe every single night over London and over the, the, the British territory and just bomb them, just relentlessly bomb them, uh, bomb apartments, houses, cities. And so the UK turned the, returned the favor in Dresden. This is war. War is not a game. And, and unfortunately, we, we throw it out there because we have heroes, we have heroic events, we watch movies, we like them. And then, you know, in the comfort of our homes and the comfort of church, it, it just becomes something that we, we throw out there. Um, but soldiers sacrifice their lives in war. And then there's always the, we, we have a really nice way of saying it, right? The collateral damage. Uh, what we should really say is the, women, children, old people, non-combatant soldiers who from the history of war have always been affected by war. Um, this is what war is. We have video cameras now. We have you know, news reporters that are everywhere like showing every single event. And, it, and now we realize, oh my word, that, that, you know, people die when bombs go off. That's why we don't want bombs to go off. That's why we don't want war. And so I, I, I hope that in our heart of hearts, we don't want war. We, we have two major conflicts going on right now in the world. And, and our goal shouldn't be rah-rah. Our goal should be, I, I hope it ends today. Um, we're looking at the biblical history of the, the Israel and Palestinian conflict. And today specifically, we're going to look at a political pathway to reconciliation and you'll notice the question mark. Uh, is there a political pathway to reconciliation? Well, there, there might be if there, it was just about politics. But as we've been studying and as we know, there, there's a biblical history to this. There's a spiritual history to this. And, and, and so, you know, political means, you know, not spiritual. It's, it's the using of government, using a government power to, to, to drive the decisions, you know, usually those are strategic and plotting and really don't have anything to do with spiritual. In fact, um, sometimes they don't even have anything to do with the impact of society, just personal power. Uh, it really reminds me of the concept of unequally yoked. You have a unequally yoked concept here of, of what can we do that's political and spiritual and, th and that'll work together. Well, well guess what? When you've got non-spiritual people leading the political, that's going to be pretty hard for them. That's what we would call unequally yoked, right? Two different decision-making processes, two different end goals, two different presuppositions. So we're going to look at this uh, political pathway to uh, reconciliation in, in four ways. Uh, we're going to look at Jacob's fear. We're going to look at uh, how Jacob formulates a plan, uh, Jacob's defensiveness, and then Jacob's fishy 
distrust. Uh, remember, in all these goals to make peace or you know not have conflict, they're all attempts to to unite, right? The problem is, is that it has to be done the wrong way. It's like in our relationships. Nobody wants a, a marriage that's full of fighting and and conflict and uh, strife. Well, but you have to go about the the reconciliation the right way. Otherwise, you, you've just address the superficial issues and what happens those same issues just keep coming back those same issues come back even bigger and worse than before well if that's the way it is in a relationship one-on-one -on -one with two people who've made a covenant and love each other and vow to be together forever how do you think that is on the bigger scale with two different nations we want to quickly review again just I was reminded just by some questions asked to me that this is very, very new to a lot of you and, and it can be very confusing, especially as we fly through fast. So wanted a quick review again, the history of, you know, the Ishmaelites and, the, you know, Edomites or the sons of, of Esau and how they relate to the Palestinians. Remember, it all starts in Genesis 12 with Abraham. It all starts with God calling Abraham from Ur, not Israel to move into the territory of Israel. It's not called Israel at that time, more the land of the Canaanites. But God makes a covenant with Abraham. God picks Abraham and says, this is going to be your land and the land of your descendants forever. So there's a covenant promise between God and the people of Israel. Go, we go on in Genesis 16 where, where Sarah and Abraham uh, you know, have a crack in their faith and they're not patient. And so they take matters in their own hands and, and Sarah decides to allow Abraham to have a child with the maidservant, Hagar. Hagar, the Egyptian, and then Abraham. And so what you have is a, is a mix then of Israel and, and Egypt, essentially, and this child, Ishmael. And Ishmael is going to be, as some of you know well, described as the wild donkey of a man. Right, His hand will be against everyone and everyone against him. And, and that completely describes the constant turmoil that the sons of Ishmael are going to have. Who are the sons of Ishmael? The sons of Ishmael are also the sons of Esau. And we see that they came together, that the tribes of Ishmael and the tribes of, of Esau came together. How? Well, Ishmael was Esau's uncle, so their family. But then Esau also marries one of Ishmael's daughters. And so they're tied in. And, and this is where we get the, the start then of, of the Ishmaelites who are living in the land of Canaan. They're intermarrying with, with the other tribes, which essentially is you know the, the, the Bible tribes in the Middle East, which will later form, be formed into the Arab tribes which would include the Palestinians, and then futuristically, then they become mostly, not all, but mostly followers of Islam or, or Muslims. And so we see the direct connection there. We see the connection with, with the Middle East being a conglomeration of a, of a bunch of independent tribes, independent clans, one of them being uh, the Palestinians. Now remember, um, the independent tribes, they will war against each other. 
And that's what brings part of the confusion today because they can go back and they can go back in history and say, well, we're independent. We're, we're not with them. Uh, but here's where they always come together. They will always come together in alliance against Israel. And that really shows their deck. That really shows their, their hand. And that shows that at the end of the day, they're all Arabs. And at the end of the day, they're Jews. And, and, and that's the distinction. And so this is all taking place in this land of, of Canaan, the, the promised land that God, again, um, restated in Joshua 1, 1 through 4, that this is the land that God chose for the people of Israel and that they're supposed to take it. The problem is Israel was occupied. Israel has always been occupied. And so one of the things that you'll hear today is like, well, how far do you want to go back? You want to go back to 1948? You want to go back to 1900? You want to go back to 1500? You want to go... It doesn't matter how far you go back. You go back all the way to the beginning, as Scripture indicates, that when Abraham goes into the land of the Canaanites, there are Canaanites already living there. There are already tribes living there. Again, just think of it like the, the Native Americans living in America, right? All of them are Indians. They're all independent. Apaches, Lummi, Muckleshoot. And what do they do? They fight each other. And then when the white man comes, okay, we'll team up and fight them. But uh, they're always fighting each other, right? Why? Because they are independent nations. Um, but we need to understand that Palestine was never, has never been a state. They've never been a nation. And so it really is, is like more like you know, a, a, a big city having Chinatown or in New York, you know, little, little Italy, right? They've had little Italy in New York for, you know, a long time. They've had Chinatowns in San Francisco and LA and New York. All, you know, it happens, but that doesn't make them a nation, right? We know they're Chinese. Uh, we know they're all together. We know they've been there for a long time, but they're not a nation. Well, that's how the Palestinians have been in this, this territory of Israel. Well, we mentioned the Great Reset, right? What was the Great Reset in the history of biblical history, which is history, right? Biblical history is history. History is biblical history. Well, the Great Reset that we saw in, in the early 1900s at the end of World War I was, well, look, you had the Ottoman Empire, which are known as the Turks, which were Muslim, the Ottoman Empire has control over the land and the territory of Israel. Who's living in Israel at the time? Palestinians, Arabs, and Jews. They're, they're all there. They're always all there. The, the, the same groups are always there. But at the end of World War I, something happens. At the end of World War I, the Brits, because the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, lost the war. How do we get land? Either God gives us land, we go and we discover and find the land, uh, we fight for land and win it, we make treaties from the fighting, or we can purchase land. That's how we get land. That's how land, everybody who's in a country, that's how everybody's gotten it, one way or another. And so the Brits then are given this territory, the, Pal the Palestine territory, and they're in control after World War I. Now, in 1936, there was a commission 
that was looking around going, well, we got all these, we've got 20% of the area is, is, is Jewish, but 80% is Palestinian. Maybe we should like create a two state system. Maybe we should create a system where you get the, you know, your land, you get your land and we'll divide it up. But the Palestinians completely rejected that. Well, now comes World War II. At the end of World War II, uh, the United Nations, there were the League of Nations at the time, the United Nations um, comes together with Great Britain and America. And Great Britain says, look, we, we've got all these Jews that have been displaced throughout Europe because of, of the Holocaust, because of the Germans. Let's give them this land of Israel. This will be part of the end of World War Treaty, right? Look at an old map of before World War II, and, and you'll see all the European nations having their map, and then after. When you fight war, maps change. Territory changes. Well, that was fine. All over the world, Pacific Islands, all over Europe, everywhere in the world, that was fine, except the Middle East. Why? Because the Arabs rejected that idea, but they're not in charge. It's Great Britain's land, or they're the ones occupying it. They basically kind of turn it over to the United Nations. United Nations, which is a conglomeration, right, of the whole world, they make the call. We're going to put the people of Israel in here. They are a state. They are a nation. And so at that time, the, the Palestinians are placed in the West Bank and Gaza, and those are going to be kind of their areas, but they're all still there, all living in the same territory, the same. As I mentioned, the, uh, the Arabs uh, come that are always together. On the very next day of that proclamation, they attack Israel, right? So you got Saudi Arabia, you got Jordan, Iran, Iraq, um, uh, Lebanon, Yemen, they all attack Israel. Israel's not a nation for a day. And all these countries who are already existence attack them. Well, um, Israel wins. What happens when you win a war? You get the land. So they got the land by treaty from World War II. They kept the land by fighting for it again. And, and so it's Israel's land. In 1967, they have what's called the Six-Day War. The same characters, Jordan and Saudi Arabia, they attack Israel again, and Israel defeats them this time in six days. Well, what happens at the end of a war when you win the war, and, well, what do we win? Well, when you're Israel, and you've got a, another people in your territory, and they have the Gaza Strip and the West Jordan, you know what you start doing? Taking back land. So Israel took back some of that land, not all of it, but some of it. Well, again, you can understand that would cause tension. And, and, but that's what happens when you lose a war. It's what happens when you sneak attack and you lose. Well, the Palestinians like the sneak attack, okay? You have to understand that at the end of all these events, what you have is a treaty. What does that mean? That means at the end of the event, you usually have war, you have treaty, then you have what's called peace, right? Why do we have peace? Because we have a treaty. Why do we have a treaty? Because we got tired of fighting war. See how that goes hand in hand? So it's supposed to resolve everything, except when people keep breaking 
the treaty. So in 1973, the Palestinians and Yom Kippur and the neighboring Arab nations attack them again. They lose again. Well, there's a shift. There's a shift from, okay, uh, the United Arab Nations attacking Israel thing is not working. So the Palestinians, the PLO, start this new wave of attack called terrorist attacks. And that's when, you know, if you're alive in the 80s, you'll, you know, wake up in the morning and you see, you know, a suicide bomber bombing a bus, you know, going into a discotheque, going into a, a restaurant. And since then, now we've really all grown up seeing suicide bombers and that kind of a thing, terrorists all over the world. But it really started here. Um, 1993, we see the Oslo Accords. 2020, we see the Abrahamic Accords. Step by step, what we've seen since 1948 in the land of Israel has been an attempt to have peace through treaties, um, the winning of peace through war, but then the constant uh, breaking of that peace. When we talk about reconciliation, when we talk about making things right, think about a relationship. It's really hard to make things right when somebody in the relationship always breaks the peace, right? I mean, just people want to say that this is complex. It's not complex. It's actually really, really simple. Um, but we've got to understand history. We have to understand uh, you, know, you know, accurate history, the resets and, and what's taken place. And what we've seen is every treaty has been broken. Well, some quick observations before we get back into the text. Um, and, and again, these aren't meant to be political, but believe me, they're not meant to be political. Just we, we, we want to get our minds wrapped around what we observe and what we see. And, and being able to understand the, the truth in that. And, and so what we usually have is, okay, here's this time of peace. And then what? Who breaks the peace? That's an indicator of who wants peace and who doesn't want peace, right? If you have one side that always breaks peace and the other side that doesn't, um, well, that's a little clue to you. So we know that the Palestinians live in it in Israel, but you know, Israelis don't live within, you know, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank because it's not safe. But there's plenty of Palestinians who live in the land of Israel. There's plenty of Arabs that live in the territory of Israel. There's Arabs that are actually in the political, uh, you know, their form of government. And so, again, if you're an outsider looking in, you could say, well, one country we can see is trying to, to meld together and another country is trying to keep everything apart. The country that's trying to keep things apart is always uh, sneak attacking the other country and always saying they're the ones that don't want to assimilate, even though they're the ones that already are assimilating. So think about that one for a second. We hear things like, well, Israel's occupation. There's a big difference between occupation and policing. Um, if you're a student of history, you know that the you know, British imperialism, the Brits would go all over the world, take over a country, impose their authority, their will and dominance over it for good and for bad. That's imperialism. 
What you see with America these days is usually there's a conflict in the world. We, we send our, our soldiers over there. We try to police it and, and, make, and, and you know, create treaties. And then we, we stay to what's called police it. We, we, don't, we don't occupy it. America is not, you know, in charge of Germany or in charge of, of, you know, all these different places all over the world. But we have bases there. We, we you know, and, and so that's part of policing. That's part, part of strategy. Well, because of all the, the attacks, the Israelites do have the area of like the Gaza Strip policed and guarded. But that's a big difference between occupation. Um, and again, remember every single opportunity that the Palestinians have had to, to actually become a state, they've rejected. Why? Because they want it all. They don't want a two-state system. They want a one-state system, a Palestinian-only system, which then, by default, completely eliminates and kicks out the Jews and the Israelites which we talked about before. There's already 22 Arab nations in that region. There's only one Jewish nation. So if you kick the Jews out of the Jewish nation, what are they left with? Nothing. Um, so that's something that we need to understand. We've been hearing this thing about no power, no water, electricity, which again should beg the question, well, why not? Who's preventing you from having power and energy? Um, Thomas Edison can create, you know, power and energy in his backyard. Uh, why can't this country create their own? Why are they relying on Israel? Um, that's a head scratcher. Why is it that they have uh, essentially 300 miles of a tunnel system, underground tunnel system that, that leads to all these shops and places to get into Israel for their sneak attacks? They have 300 miles, yet their city is only 25 miles by seven miles. Do the math on that one. They have more underground tunnels for military terrorist sneak attacks than they, than they do land. But they have no subways. They have no transportation. They, you know, you can look at pictures in Israel and you'll see, you know, clubs and and restaurants and pools and things like that. And you look in Palestine, it, you know, it's pretty grim. Why? Why aren't they spending their money building up their economy? Why doesn't uh, the Gaza Strip, I mentioned this before, look like Dubai? Uh, Manhattan is as big as the Gaza Strip. All we hear is that it's too small, it's too small, it's too small. It's not too small for Manhattan. It's not too small for New York to be the, probably the most powerful state in the world. If you don't have land sideways, what do you do? You go up. Um, that's what you do with your money. You don't build more missiles, more missiles, more missiles. But since 2001, since 2001, okay, that's a long time. You don't realize this, but every single month, the Palestinians have launched rockets into Israel. These are all documented. That's 273 straight months that they launched rockets into Israel. That's not to play nice. Uh, rockets kill people. There's a reason why Israel has this thing called the Iron Dome. You don't build a multi-billion dollar Iron Dome to protect from missiles if you don't have missiles that are constantly coming, okay? 
gives you an indication of how the two sides are. One spends money on, on creating a new society. Another one spends money on having short-range missiles and tunnels. Um, all this to say, it, it, it leads up to, you know, we, we look outside and everything seems quiet and peaceful. And then 911 hits, right? Boom. What happens? Something happens that creates a shift. Well, on December, or I'm sorry, on October 7th, there was peace in Israel. What happened? Paragliders paraglide in to a music festival and kill a couple hundred young people. Um, that, 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 that's an, an act of violence. That, that's a terrorist attack. Then they, they go in and start going door to door into cities, basically fighting non-military combatants. That's a shift. That's a shift in from peace to we're at war. Well, now war is ugly. And we're seeing the ramifications of that. We're seeing the ramifications of then Israel's response back. And so you attack my house, I attack your apartment building kind of a thing, right? Um, and then what do we have? Then we hear the crying of wolf. We only want peace. We only want peace. Why can't Israel just stop firing at us? We're looking at reconciliation. We're trying to understand what peace looks like. Well, one of the ways, if you want a peace right now, um, give back the hostages that you have. They don't ever talk about that on the news. Uh, give back the American hostages that you have, by the way. Um, lay down your weapons. You, you go, somebody's got to go first, right? Usually, if you got a really big guy and a little guy, maybe the little guy should say, uncle. Okay, um, so cry uncle and um, accept a two-state treaty. It's always offered. But see, from the river to the sea is not a two-state solution. But one of the things that we have to understand, you know where that phrase really comes from? It comes from the Bible. It comes from Joshua 1. It comes from God saying to, to Abraham, God saying to Joshua, your land, the land I promised you to the sons of Israel is from the river to the sea. And so part of the tension that we're seeing here is, okay, there's a, a political tension, but there is a spiritual one too, because you have the Palestinians making a claim to what God has ordained for Israel. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand the conflict. And so when we look forward into this, we want to understand and we want to have a, a genuine concept of, well, what does reconciliation look like? And so turn back to Genesis 32. I know that was a, a long review and intro, but we really, again, have to have our arms wrapped around it. We, we can only understand failed peace when we kind of go back and understand this history, the, the tension, the history with Ishmael and Esau and, um, and the Arab nations. Genesis 32, 1 through, uh, 1 through 12. Now Jacob went on his way. The angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanahim. 
Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, remember, for 20 years, and stayed until now. And I have, an, I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent them to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. I want peace. Right? Jacob doesn't want war. Jacob wants peace. He's going into the land that he is not possessed yet. There are already people in that land. You can see where there could be some tension here. Plus, and we'll get into the family strife. Verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to meet you. Yay! With 400 men with him. Uh-oh. That doesn't sound right. Um, you don't generally take 400 men with you to say, Greetings, brother. <laughs> then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Little side note here. War is brutal. War is ugly. War includes women and children. Always has. Always will. That's why we don't like it. That's why we don't root for war. It's horrible. Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, Return to your country, to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which thou hast sworn to thy servant. For with my staff only I have crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. For thou didst say, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude." Well, our, our first kind of pathway and understanding, our first pathway to reconciliation, we see begins with, with fear. Uh, one of these parties has great fear. Now, fear is not a good thing in, 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 in resolving tension in a relationship. When, when somebody is afraid, then they tend to, it, it's like the animal in the corner, right? What, what do you do when you corner an animal? He gets afraid. What does he do? He goes medieval. It gets crazy, right? Fear produces some irrational things. Well, are Jacob's fears rational? We see that Jacob has, has a, a healthy fear for his brother. Well, why would that be? Could it be that he was very, very shrewd when his brother was starving to steal his birthright? Is, is that why he's a little afraid of Esau? Or is it because with his mother, he tricked his brother 
out of the blessing. Well, he has really good reasons to be afraid of his brother. Or could it be that the last time that they spoke in Genesis 27, 41, Esau, you know, made a little, little vow, a little statement. I will kill Jacob again. Why would he want to kill Jacob? Well, when you steal my birthright and my blessing and in his mind, when you steal my inheritance, when you steal my future, you know what? And you trick me and you use mama to do it with me. You've never been that angry. You, you don't know what that kind of anger is. Well, for Esau is I'm going to kill my brother. That's why Jacob is afraid. So he has this idea. I'm going to send some messengers and, and, and look, he's going to tickle his ear. He's going to soften it up. My Lord Esau, right? My Lord Esau, humble, humble Jacob, right? Um, we're just servants, you know, servants. So he gets his people, his servants, go, go check it out. You guys, he's going to have this plan. Go, go check it out, right? Tickle his ear, soften him up. He starts dividing things up, but he does something that is great. Jacob decides, you know what? This is a problem. I was afraid of my brother before. Now he's, he's got 400 Chris's by his side, right? And it's like, I got a bunch of women and children, you know, I got. And he's like, now he's really afraid. He's greatly afraid. He's greatly distressed. When you're greatly afraid, when you're greatly distressed, what do you do? Go before the throne of God. Beautiful picture here. And he goes before God and, and, he, and he states his position. I am unworthy. I'm just a man. I'm a sinful man. I've, I've, I've done sinful things. I've done wrong things. I, I'm not worthy. And then he takes a little twist, right? Because he first he addresses him as, Oh God of my father, Abraham. And we would just say, Oh yeah, that's, that's cute. No, he's calling upon the covenantal promise, the Abrahamic promise, the covenant that God will not break, the covenant of Abraham and Isaac in the future will be known as Jacob. And so he says, oh God, my father Abraham, not oh God, the father of Noah, oh God, the father of Adam, no God, the father of Abraham and the God of my father Isaac. Didn't you say Weren't you the one to tell me, go back? It wasn't my idea. I'm here with Laban. I got all these, I got sheep, goats, rams, lamb, family. We're cool. But you said, go back to the land of your own. And you said I would prosper. So all of a sudden this prayer, it's like, eh, I don't know about this. Okay, he's kind of humble, but he's also pointing the finger at, at God. And so he, he starts out with, with kind of really getting to the to the quick of it, I have Abrahamic covenant that I'm calling upon. And then he goes back to the humble verse 11, deliver me, free me, save me. Only you can save me, God. I pray from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, I fear him. Deliver me lest he attack me and the mothers and the children. That's the expectation. 
And that's part of the expectation of fear. It's really hard to reconcile when you have fear and when your expectation is completely negative. I'm assuming you're coming to kill all the women and children in me. That's not really a negotiating starting point, right? Um, and again, he closes with, didn't you, uh, let me repeat, just in case you didn't hear it the first time. Didn't you say, God, I will surely prosper? Didn't you say, make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered? Now, it's okay to, we, we see many men call upon the name of the Lord and remind God of, about the covenant and promises. But it's another thing to almost tell God, you know, we're going to manipulate this situation. First, I'm going to pull the, the Adam and blame God. Adam blames Eve and Adam blames God for giving him Eve. And now we see kind of the same pattern. Didn't you tell me to go in this land, which now I'm going to have this altercation with Esau. Reconciliation begins with honest humility, not a pseudo humility an honest humility. And in the honest humility of really bowing down before him and saying, I, I'm, I'm, I'm completely giving up and I'm relying and I'm putting my trust, my hope in whatever you do, Esau. That's not what he does. That's not what he does before the throne of God. But see, he doesn't have that, that complete trust and reconciliation through Christ. Um, and so he, he can't do that. Well, Continuing on, our second point is then, so Jacob formulates this, this plan, right? Verse 13. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with, with him a present, a bribe, a, a gift for his brother Esau. 200 male goats, 20 male goats, female goats, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ooze, 20 rams, 30 milking cows, their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 donkeys, um, 10 males, and he delivered them into the hands of his servants, every drove itself, and said to his servants, pass on before me. So, okay, guys, Brian, you're going to go before me and go talk to my brother who wants to kill me and has got 400 guys. Thanks. Okay. Um, and he commanded the one in the front saying, well, my brother meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong? Because remember, out there on the road, you just got a bunch of people. And, and unlike, you know, walking from Four Corners Maple Valley to, to Enumclaw, it's really more like going from Compton to East L.A. And when a bunch of, you know, vatos come walking through the town, you're a little suspicious at first until you find out why exactly are you walking through here. Okay? It's a dangerous world. Here's a bunch of people. So they want to, so Esau makes perfect sense. Who are you guys? Who do you belong to? Where are you going? Who do these animals belong to? What's going on? Verse 18, then you shall say these belong to, again, tickle his ear, to your servant, Jacob. It is a present to my Lord. Notice the position. You're the Lord. You're in charge. You're the man. And behold, he is also behind us. He's here with us. What's going to happen? That's, that's the, it's like, you're, you're the guy to find out. 
Uh, and then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed in droves saying, after this matter, you shall speak to Esau when you find him and you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. So it's like, let's test this out. Well, not just once, because maybe, I don't know, he likes Brian. Brian, you know, sweet talker. He gets through. Okay, well, now the wave with Brett comes. Now the way it's like, we're going to check this thing out, right? Um, so he formulates this plan and it's, it, it, it's, it's human planning. Verse 20, and you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. I will appease him with the present that goes before. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So we want to get close. We want to see. Verse 21, so the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp, that first wave. What we see is in reconciliation, we need humility, right? We, 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 we need to set aside our, our fears, but, but we, we also need to understand that it's not just like your scheme. Jacob thinks that he's like manipulating the situation. I've got gifts, I've got waves, I've got people. I got, and it's like, you know, Esau might have something to say about this whole thing. But even more importantly, God has something to say. Did you completely forget that, that God is in charge of orchestrating and making sure, Jacob, that you don't die? Um, we're we're, we're going to pass on for time here. But that night, Jacob actually be, wrestles with God. And it's at this point where God changes Jacob's name to Israel, which again is a a, a promise and a future hope. Jacob, you can't die today. You're Israel. You're the future. Um, but Jacob formulates a human plan. His plan includes, you know, paying off, right? Trying to buy and earn atonement. He's trying to, to, to appease his brother, to sugar him up. He's going to use other people other as pawns in his scheme. And so, okay, I, I've prayed over here. I did my, you know, obligatory prayer. I kind of trust God and hope in God, but I'm not sure that he remembers his promise. But I'm also going to plot. I'm also going to, you know, move forward in this kind of half in, half out, half I trust God, half I trust in my own brain. Sound like anybody you know? Um, well, the third thing that we see here is Jacob's fishy response. Jacob has a fishy response to his now interaction with his brother. We'll skip ahead to Genesis 33. Genesis 33, 1. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two, maid, and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children front and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. What a guy. <laughs> you know, the man, we just had a, 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 one of our studies, and we, we just saw an example of this with Abraham, you know. Goes down to Egypt. You know, he's, not, he's afraid of what's going to happen. He's got a beautiful wife. He's like, take her. Um, I, this is one of the things that I love about the Bible is how true it is. Because if I were writing it and a story about me or my family, it's like I would eliminate that part, right? It just makes us look bad. 
Again, it would look like one of those superhero stories. You know, Jacob comes out and challenges Esau. No. Um, then Esau ran. So, so here's Jacob. He's formulated this strategy. He's got this plan. He's got it all worked out. What if here? What if there? I position that servants, the women, maybe he'll, he does all this stuff. He's configuring all of this stuff. And, and then they finally come to this climax in the story. The altercation is about to take place and Esau sees his brother. And what does he do? He runs. He runs to meet him and embrace him. And not just like a hug and break. He, the expression here in the Hebrew, he fell on his neck and kissed him and they went. He brings him in tight. He's face to face, cheek to feet, cheek with his brother. It's not like a half hug, right? It's not the half hug thing you do. I mean, he's in there. He's all in his business. It's been 20 years, people. 20 years since he's seen his little brother. He's had 20 years to think about what took place. Jacob isn't over it. Jacob is living in fear. Esau has moved on. And he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and the children and said, who are these with you? So he said, these are children whom God has graciously given your servant. The, then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down after Joseph came near with, with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Well, that's a lie, right? He's like, what a, what a weird way. You know, he's like, what is going on? These waves of people and kids. Like, what did you mean by that? I mean, that's kind of awkward. And then his brother, well, it's, it's to five, find favor with you, my Lord. It's all for you. Um, and I love this response. But Esau says to him, brother, I have enough. I have plenty. Let what you have, let it be your own. When we think about reconciliation, when we think about forgiveness, think about this interaction with these, these two guys. One guy's trying to buy and earn and, and, and trick his way through, through peace, but ready to fight, right? He's ready to go. He's, He's suspicious of the whole deal. The other guy's just ready to forgive. See, that's what it takes to have real rec reconciliation. That's why when we look at Israel and Palestine, the Palestinians, we don't have reconciliation because we don't have one or two parties who are exhibiting genuine forgiveness that can only produce proper reconciliation. All they've been able to do year after year after year is create a pseudo short-term eye, sleep with their eye, one eye open type of temporary peace treaty. That's it. Not genuine reconciliation. And genuine reconciliation cannot come without Christ. Because the, the, the centerpiece of reconciliation isn't me and my human flesh, and it isn't the other person in their human flesh. It, it's Christ. 
what Christ has done atoning for my sin, paying for my sin, that humbles me and allows me to bow before the throne of God and allows the other person to come in and do the same. Now we're on the same page. So you're in that husband-wife relationship and, and they've twerked you and irked you and it's the 252nd time, even though you're not keeping account of wrong suffered. Uh, but you know, and look, the only way you reconcile, it's like the Lord God Almighty found a way to give me grace, to give me mercy, to die on the cross, to pay for my sins so that I could be fully, completely atoned for. And now I'm no longer alienated. I'm reconciled in this relationship. I can trust. I can have confidence. I can have faith to move forward. That's reconciliation. What we have here is a very misguided and, and, and we see as we move forward that that Jacob's response is so, so fishy and suspicious. Verse 11, please take my gift, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. Jacob is, is encountered face to face with his brother. He's trying to buy his forgiveness. His brother says, I don't want it. I'll give you free grace. What's Jacob's response to that? No, 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 no. Let me pay you. So we have that kind of relationship with God where we, we, we think we're going to earn it in our special, tricky, unique ways. It's a free gift. So he urged him to take it. Then Esau says, all right, let, let's, he, he took it. And he says, let's take, let, let's take you on a journey and go and I'll go before you. Let, let's, let's go home and I'll go before you. I got 400 dudes. We're, we're rolling, baby. We're going to get you home safely. No problem. We can take care of everything. Verse 13. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children and the women are frail and the flocks and the herds, they, they need nursing and care and uh, you know, and if, if they're driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please, please, my Lord, you, go on before his servant. And then I'll proceed at my leisure after. I don't want your military, you know, protection. I don't need the, you know, the police cars driving me on the way, you know, to have this baby. No, no, no. We'll do it on our own. We can do it. It's not because he's being gracious. It's because he's scared. He's still operating in fear. And in that fear, we haven't made peace. We haven't reconciled. We're still on different pages. Well, that, that, that festers and, that, and that, will, that ripple will keep going. Verse 15, and Esau says, please let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. Right? I'll leave you with some of my, you know, my, my uh, Navy SEALs, my Green Berets. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. God will take care of me. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought we were all going to Edomclaw. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're going to Selleck, you know. And we know those kids are crazy, but we're going that way. Because I don't trust what's over there. And the only real thing that I know that's over there is you and what I did. And we see how this ties in with Israel and, 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 and the Palestinians today is there's so much what you did, what I did and how you 
backstabbed and you broke treaty and then your retaliation. I mean, they've got century after century, year after year, war after war. This is two guys. Just imagine two nations, two countries. And so the, the concept of peace and reconciliation, they, they just can't see it. And if you listen to interviews, if you listen to them talk, they'll bring it up on the all the time. Well, why did you paraglide in there? Well, because in 1948, what? 1948? What are you talking about? Because um, they can't get over the past. They never properly reconciled. You can't reconcile when you don't trust. You can't reconcile when you try to buy your way through the deal. And so Jacob's fishy response is to go a different direction, to go the other way. And so Jacob journeyed to Succoth and he built it for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. He's setting up shop. This is where we're living. We're, we're setting up, you know, little, little mangers. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came to Padamaran and camped before his cities. And he brought the piece of land and he bought the piece of land. He bought the piece of land. He's... We're here. This is home, right? And he pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, the God of Israel. So he gets spiritual again now that it's kind of all over. Well, this is the cycle. This is the cycle. Why, why are we where we're at today? You see that cycle taking place right here in the beginning. This cycle of, of there's a violation. Then there's a kind of peace treaty, right? But it's, it's made through fear and distrust. And so eventually it's going to be broken. It's going to be broken. And then they'll get back to it again. And then they'll just go in this, this cycle. So the pathway or a political pathway to reconciliation is not a pathway. It's an unbiblical pathway. It's an unequally yoked pathway. Their greatest need that they have is not political. It's not brand new apartment buildings. It's not water and electricity. Their greatest need is their freedom from sin. That's their greatest need. We mentioned before that Israel is not following the Lord right now. They're not following Yahweh. We've got, so we ask ourselves as Christians, well, which side are we on? We're on the side of Jesus. They both need Jesus. They both need Christianity. Now we can see and, and kind of look at the two different ways that they're approaching this, but, but let's keep our minds straight. The greatest need is their freedom from sin. To be free from the oppression of sin. They will find joy in their life if they find Christ, if they find the gospel, and it's the gospel that will ultimately transform their lives. Not, not peace, not pools, not apartment buildings, not, not you know, building up cities. That, that's not what's going to do it. It's the transformation that the Holy Spirit provides in the human life. They all need to turn to Jesus. And without that spiritual reconciliation, there is no pathway to political reconciliation. And so when we come back, we'll take a look at then, well, what is, 
this spiritual reconciliation look like? Well, what does it look like when Israel turns its heart? Can Israel turn its heart back to the Lord? What might that look like? Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that we have your word that is the truth. It's not a half truth. It's a full truth. And Lord, we see that in our humanity that we always try to outfox your plan to do things our own way, to in our pride, in our arrogance, to, to try to be scheming and tricky. Lord, it doesn't work with other people and it certainly doesn't work when we're trying to, to, to do it to you. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before your throne. We don't know everything. We can't understand everything. There's a lot of things that take place that are out of our control and, and just seem so horrific and so scary. And, and we have such great fear. But that's when we're, we're supposed to, to rely on you the most. That's not when we get trickier or develop a greater scheme. That's when we go lower to the ground on our knees and, and on our face and our hands sprawled out. And that's when we cling to you, Lord, trusting and hoping in you. And let's see what you can do. Let's see how you work your magic. Lord, we don't know why Esau was out with 400 men. Did Esau have every intention of his heart to utterly destroy Jacob, but then Jacob asked you to deliver him. So God changed his heart. How was it that Esau was just so easily able to forgive? So we don't know, Lord. And, and, and what we do know is that if you make a promise in the covenant, you're going to keep it. And you have so many different ways. You could have brought a hailstorm and destroyed 400 men. You could have opened up the dirt and brought a, another Red Sea situation. Lord, it is endless how you could have gotten them out of that situation. And Lord, it's the same thing for us. And Lord, we... We have to make decisions. We have to move in this world. And so we pray that we are in sync with your will and your desire because you are sovereign and you are in control. And we trust you. Lord, thank you for the reconciliation provided by the blood of Christ on the cross. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.